Hello and welcome to Vet Club. It is time for an episode of Vet Books. It's been a little while since we've uh, we've done a book chapter, and so yeah, we're back to it. Um, and it's it's been long enough that we forgot where we were. So yeah, we, we had to look it up. We, we always chapter. have to look it up anyway. That's true, but I feel like it's been a, long, a little while. So anyway, yeah, we got sick, and then we were out of town, and then I was out of town. But we did. I did some other shows. You haven't been on the program for a while, though. No, I've been. Slacking, slacking. I have to work every day. Yeah, I don't. It's I so just sit hard. around and wait around for you to be available to do the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, that's exactly how it works. Which is why we're not doing the week because I haven't worked. Yeah. That's not true. Okay. Proof. So we're at chapter 17, which means we're at uh, vet books number 18. I just feel the need to like point that out every time. Mm-hmm. So chapter 17 in Small Animal Critical Care Medicine, second edition, um, just in case you're joining us at chapter 17. Um, so this chapter is about upper airway disease and was written by Dana Clark, um, who's a criticalist. And yeah, so this is this is kind of, these are always, I think, sort of tricky chapters um, to write because upper airway disease it has a common theme of upper airway issues, but like then each kind of disease has its own little way of addressing things. Um, so there's a little bit about, you know, like what's specific to upper airway disease. And then um, appropriately, I think she just kind of breaks it down into the different diseases and what's unique about each of those. Um, so Is there like lower airway diseases. Yes. Oh, there are. Okay. What are <laughs> yes. the lower airways and the upper airways? Oh, that's a that's a good question. So the upper airways typically involves anything from the outside world through to the trachea. Okay, so um, that would be the nose, the nostrils, the mouth, um, and all of the structures kind of at the back of the mouth, so the oral pharynx, um, and because that's where things kind of divide up between going into the digestive system and then going into the respiratory system. Um, so you have the larynx and the pharynx. And so the larynx is going to go into the respiratory system. And so um, laryngeal diseases are going to be included in the upper airway. And then the trachea. So is this usually is like your ear, nose and throat doctor. So. Kind of. Yeah, actually, that's true. <laughs> I never really thought of it that way. But yeah. What are they, what are they, is it your nose, throat? They have like Except a- ears. Ears don't really count there but but like that doctor that's what yeah it's an ear nose and throat doctor an ent i think it's a uh, otolaryngologist or something like that otolaryng up ear nose and throat otorhinoling i don't know are you gonna google it no i, um, oh, I do have my phone i think it's an something like that i don't remember exactly right, what it's called google it. so, yeah you google it um and then the lower airways are everything after the trachea um so yeah that was a good question and actually it's a good thing to clarify. So the lower airways, yeah, this prob- probably chapter 18, actually. Um, hang on, now I got to look ahead. Nope, <laughs> it's not. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, but that's okay. You'll have to just stay tuned and listen for the next chapter. It is a otolaryngologist. Yeah. So that doesn't actually include the nose then, because oto is ear, and then laryngologist is the larynx. That's the part I was just telling you. That's the cartilaginous yeah. bits that separate the back of the mouth from the, the trachea. Um, so ear, nose, and throat doctor doesn't, there's no nose. It would be like rhino in the in the name somewhere if you want to include the Latin. Anyhow, not to get too far off. Um, but yeah, so an, uh, an ear, nose, and throat or otolaryngologist 
does upper airway diseases plus the ears, I guess, or maybe how the ears, there is a little bit of communication in people where like if you have an inner ear thing, I think anyway. Okay. So <laughs> a couple of things that I think um, are important and um, is recognizing an animal that has um, upper airway disease, certainly in an emergency. And, you know, the main things I like to focus on are just what kind of breathing patterns those patients take on. And if you get really good at observing just breathing and you understand how we breathe and then what we do when normal breathing won't cut it, um, what kind of accessory muscles or what other, you know, what other things we do to try to uh, reduce the work of breathing or make it easier to get air in. And so there's some very specific things that animals with an upper airway um, issue will do. And so the first thing is they typically have problems um, on inspiration, not exclusively, but very typically. So certainly we'll talk about some of the specific diseases, but they'll have a hard time bringing air in. And so that's um, some of the things that they will do that you can observe, which is really lovely because patients in any kind of respiratory distress are fragile. And um, so if you can just look at them and how they're breathing and like get a lot of information, I think that's really helpful and something I kind of harp on a lot. And so looking at it, do, are their nostrils flaring? That's a thing that happens when they have an inspiratory problem and they're trying to increase the air getting in. Like do they have like a stuffy nose? Yeah. I mean, kind of, um, you know, it's rarely a stuffy nose because you can also just breathe through your mouth, which mm. is annoying. But that's one of the things like that would narrow it down to like a nasal problem is if the animal is breathing through their mouth, um, that can be confusing because some people will freak out and be like, Oh my gosh, they're gasping for air. And it's like, actually they just can't breathe through their nose. Just like when you get a cold. Um, so you have to also look they're for panting. signs of distress. They're really hot. We have to cool them down. Yeah, right. And she's got a stuffy like, nose. Yeah. Um, that's not, super common, but it can happen for sure. And I have some good videos of it, but, um, so if their nostrils are flaring, that's one thing they'll sometimes, um, use the muscles in their neck as well, um, to try to, you know, and you, you kind of can do this yourself. Like if you sit there and put your hands on either side of your neck and then take a deep breath in, you'll notice you engage those muscles. Um, and then the other thing that, um, some of these patients will do, they'll extend their head and neck, um, and that's in an effort to try to just straighten out the tubes to, you know, make less resistance, fewer um, hard turns for the air. Uh, so there's less turbulence. It's just less resistance to getting air through. So those are just some of the simple behavioral things that you can look at. And if you notice that um, a patient is doing that during breathing, that may clue you in that it's an inspiratory problem. The other thing is just some of the noises they make. Um, there are two major uh, upper respiratory noises that we talk about. And those are strider and sturder. And you guys have the pleasure of... Yeah. Those are terrible names. Why are they terrible it's names? It's so like strider, sturder. Yeah, because they, like, they sound similar? Yeah, it's like having um, like two kids and it was like, what would it be? I don't know, Brian and Byron? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. If you see them written, it maybe it's easier. Here, here's the trick um, for remembering is strider, strider is associated with a higher pitched noise. And usually we hear this in dogs with laryngeal paralysis. And I'm going to, I'm going to demonstrate this. I'm going to back away from the microphone a little bit just in case it's really loud. But <laughs> Topher's laughing because of my face probably. Yeah. So that, that higher, I don't know if that came through, but hopefully it did. And if not, that was just an, a waste of embarrassment, but that higher pitch, um, strider. So it doesn't quite get to a whistle usually with strider, but it is a higher pitch. 
um, an increased noise uh, during breathing. And then stertor is the classic low pitched rumbling or like the snoring that we nor- normally think about. So, <laughs> so, the, so like a, like a bulldog. A, always. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. So French bulldogs, English bulldogs, all the different nationalities of bulldogs are going to have um, a stertor when they breathe. I mean, some of them can breathe quietly, but a lot, that's pretty common. And so Sturter and Strider don't in and of themselves mean that a patient is in trouble. But if a patient is in trouble, if they're having trouble breathing and you're hearing that sound, it certainly would raise your suspicion that the problem is in that region. Um, so meaning kind of in the, the laryngeal region or upper airway, essentially, it's going to be a little bit different if it's um, brachycephalic and that stertorous snoring versus laryngeal paralysis with that stridorous kind of high pitched um, whistling there. So those are, those are some of the upper airway noises. And you can hear those, as you know, in a bulldog or something from across the room, potentially. So those are some things that might clue the veterinarian or the veterinary team in to what, you know, this patient's in distress and I think it's probably related to the sound that I'm hearing. Um, so that can kind of clue you in on what to do about it. And this is where, um, I, I differ a little bit on with what I think a lot of people will say in these patients with upper airway disease or, or, you know, difficulty is the, the first thing most people want to do is provide them with supplemental oxygen. And while that's not wrong and I'm not saying that it is wrong, I would say it is rarely sufficient because if you have an obstruction, yes, if you increase the fraction of inspired oxygen, that means there's more oxygen of the air that does get down into the LVLI, higher percentage is oxygen. And so maybe that will help some, but really what you have to do is relieve the obstruction, like whatever that obstruction is. Um, And there's different ways to do that. And so providing that patient with supplemental oxygen is okay. Um, That's fine. But I don't like you shouldn't stop there like that. You should not expect that that will be sufficient to fix the problem. Right. Um, And again, it it should be done in my opinion, in combination with other things. And I think the other things are what are really going to make a difference for that patient. And I've relieved like distress. Usually not. And that's, that's a really good point um, because relieving distress is the most important thing we can do in these patients. In, in, in every case there, sometimes that this, Two won't be enough, but if you relieve distress and not being able to breathe in and of itself is distressing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the problem. That's why I would have thought it would have relieved distress because it's like, oh, now I'm breathing enough. Yeah, except that it doesn't make, I don't think it makes that enough of a difference to calm them down. And also the methods we have to provide extra oxygen in dogs and cats are not exactly without stress. So like you or I could go in and and be like, okay, we're going to put this little prong in your nose and it might tickle or be a little bit annoying, but it's going to provide you extra oxygen. And you go, okay. Um, One, we don't have, I shouldn't say that. Those prongs rarely work very well in dogs and cats because their noses aren't built for that. And Mm. they're not, the prongs are not designed for their noses. Um, and also the, all the different sizes and things where most people's noses are roughly this like similar in size, not true in dogs. Um, so the, op- the opportunities or the, the ways that we can provide oxygen while there's lots of them, they all come with their own different types of stressors. So it's like that big old ice cream cone. Yeah. So you could put, um, uh, there, so you can either use like an e-collar with like a saran wrap over the edge, which Honestly, that would stress me out if yeah. you put that on me. It's like in a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> I think the preview for, uh, was it the Darling movie, the new? Don't worry, Darling. Don't worry, Darling. Oh, yeah. She, she put, does that. She do, she puts it directly over her face, which is admittedly not what we do in veterinary medicine. So we put the <laughs> cone and it extends beyond their face and then you cover that. But I, 
I also think most animals have not seen or understood any horror films, so they may not get the psychological <laughs> distress that would come to you or I. Um, but e-collars in and of themselves, a lot of animals don't like. So that's a tricky one. There is oxygen tanks or cages that you can put them in. And if the animal is small enough, that can be a good option. And it's, it's one that I actually am a fan of because you can be hands off. You can put them in the cage, close the door. The downside is the door is now closed and I can't really access that patient. The other downside is the, the machines can be a little bit loud and they kind of like click on and off and that can startle certain patients. And so they're not perfect either. You can put a, a nasal cannula. So rather than just a little prong at your nose, you can put a, a, a you know, a soft, softish rubber tube kind of further up their nose, which can be really annoying as well. And so placing that can be really stressful. Um, people can do just like flow by where you just like kind of waft some extra oxygen by their mm -hmm. nose. Um, and that rarely provides a ton of extra oxygen. Um, so again, there's lots of different ways to do it. And in the short term, just like pick one that seems minimally stressful for that animal. But ultimately you have to do a few things to one, like you said, relieve the distress. Um, but again, in my experience, just providing oxygen doesn't do that, um, in upper airway disease cases in, in some animals where like their problem is like a lung problem and that, that, that might be all you need to do. Um, but generally for these patients, actively relieving their stress or chemically relieving their stress is usually necessary. So some amount of sedation um, or anxiolytic, and some people disagree about the use of that. P people use that term really loosely. But anyway, some give them some sort of drug to calm them down. Um, and I think that's going to be really, really important in all of these upper airway disease patients is to provide some sort of sedation. And I think one thing that new, um, new graduates, young veterinarians sometimes forget is they worry about, oh, these patients are really fragile. True. And so I, I'm afraid to sedate them um, because they're worried like this is a fragile patient and sedating them might get, make it worse. Um, but may perhaps counterintuitively, the opposite is true. Like you just have to provide them with sedation. And if anybody who's ever experienced the sensation of having the wind knocked out of you or that panicky feeling you get when you can't catch your breath, Imagine if that feeling doesn't go away after a few seconds like it normally does when you get the quote unquote wind knocked out of you. It's really stressful and it's kind of awful and miserable and terrible. And if we can provide some stress relief chemically, then we should absolutely do that. And it's absolutely safer for the animal than just letting them continue to be in distress. So I think that's probably more important even than providing oxygen and, um, you know, coming up to, with different protocols, it's going to depend. Um, I think the two drugs for upper airway disease patients that I'm most likely to go for alone would be butorphanol um, or acepromazine. And butorphanol would be what I would use if I wasn't sure about the patient's cardiovascular status. Um, or I just thought they needed a little mild sedation. Acepromazine is going to be a little bit dicier if you don't know about the cardiovascular status. Uh, uh, status of the patient uh, because it can cause low blood pressure um, and it's not reversible, but it is usually going to be a little bit stronger sedative than just butorphanol. Um, but those are kind of my two go-tos. There's lots of other things that could be used. I usually don't want to knock them out. I just want to take the edge off though so that they can continue to breathe, but just be less stressed about it. Um, and then if you had to guess what the like those weren't working. You've provided some oxygen, you've given them some sedation and they're just not calming down or they're still struggling to breathe. What do you think you have to do? Do you have to put, shove a tube down their throat? Yeah, that's exactly what you have to do. And I'm really proud of you that said shove a tube down their throat rather than do uh, a Sandra Bullock tracheotomy. <laughs> um, 
Do you remember what movie that's from? Yeah, that's from um, The Heat. The Heat, yeah. Oh my God, that's such a funny movie. You did a great job. You you were terrible. No, you were terrible. <laughs> yes. Never tried to help Thank again. you. You're great. You're I found terrible. They, they have a name for that. It's um, Ricky Responder. What? That's a Ricky Responder. What's a Ricky Responder? Someone who like tries to do a bunch of stuff before but the they ENT. they screw everything yeah, up. Yeah, and they're just terrible. And like <laughs> even when the responders get there, they're still trying to help. It's like, no. Back off. Call us and we'll come do our job. That's hilarious. Yeah, I was reading something. That, a Ricky Responder. Yeah, I've never there was heard someone that. who was like a firefighter and EMT. It's like, yeah, we call those Ricky Responders. <laughs> the, the, the thing about like alliteration is like negative Nancy's yeah. or Ricky Responder. Anyway, so um, don't be a Ricky Responder. Don't jump to a trachea. Hopefully that's not like a terribly offensive term. I just don't know. I have no idea. I mean, to probably people named Ricky. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyway, sorry. Sorry, Ricky. Um, generally speaking, you almost never in my experience have to do an emergency tracheotomy in these patients. Um, if they are getting into trouble and you feel like everything you're doing isn't working and they're getting worse and getting worse, then I would give them heavy sedation to the point of essentially um, inducing anesthesia so you can put uh, an endotracheal tube in. And it is rare that I can't do that. Um, you may have to use a smaller tube than you would have expected if they either have a lot of swelling or, for example, if there's like a mass blocking the way. But use the smaller tube then. It's still it's yeah, still going to be better like than cutting a hole thing. in the neck. Yeah. Because, again, you cut a hole in the neck, the tube's smaller than you yeah. would do. The tube's for, only a couple inches longer than if you'd go. Well, it's the diameter of the tube. That, that, that's yeah. what I mean. Make, yeah, well, I mean, smaller it's tube. It's like you just go. Yeah, you just need to get some air. Even if this, the tube you get in is a red rubber tube, like get a tube in the airway. Um, now, sometimes once we get an airway secured, then we have to do like a temporary tracheostomy. Um, but that's under controlled circumstances when you have a secured airway. Um, again, very rare that you have to do an emergency tracheotomy. But it's um, so cool in the movie. It's so cool in the movies. Yeah, but um, it's also a bloody mess. Yeah, and I wonder how many times in the movie that they shoved the straw like into the neck. They could have just shoved it down their throat and it would work just yeah probably same. probably although actually that that's a good point uh, and pe people are harder to intubate than dogs and cats yeah like yeah they that's apparently like a, a fairly challenging thing to do in people there's like a weird angle yeah i think the angle is particularly weird where it's actually not that hard in dogs and cats there are other species that like you can't intubate them very easily but dogs and cats are really pretty most of them are pretty easy to intubate so my suggestion would be try that first i mean i'm not saying spend 30 minutes trying it um if you get back there and you just can't get it in but like get just get a smaller tube like don't start with i'm gonna get the biggest tube i can get in here like no put a tiny tube in and then now that can serve as like a stylet um so you can get a bigger tube in if you need to but um, yeah, most of the time they don't need to be intubated. Um, but if your initial things aren't working, intubate them. If that's really not working or if you generally like don't have time and they are completely obstructed, you might have to do an emergency tracheotomy. But in my experience, those are very, very rare. Um, probably the reason they're so rare um, is that if an animal has a complete obstruction that you couldn't intubate them, they probably didn't survive to get yeah, to your Yeah, I was going to say, it's like they can't make it the drive. Yeah, it's to a couple of minutes. Clinic. It's a couple of minutes. And so those patients, if they have a full 100% occlusion of their airway, they don't make it to you. Um, so, yeah, and I'm not going to start training clients to do it. It's, it's a rare thing to need. So if they've survived to you, that probably means they have a partial obstruction, which means you can get a small tube in their airway. Um and then I just, I think about the, the time years ago when I had residents with a snake bite victim that had a very, very swollen head and they started doing an emergency 
I think they were, I don't even know what they were trying to, trying to do a tracheostomy on that patient. By the way, got bitten by a snake and because of that is coagulopathic. So it has a bleeding disorder and they're cutting into the neck. And I came in because they were needing help. And uh, I came in to help and I said, did anybody try to just orotracheally intubate? And they, the three of them looked at one another and like kind of did that like head slap. <laughs> they didn't actually do that, but oh, yeah, that was, mm-hmm. that was a frustrating. Yeah, you were very upset. Yeah, I was very upset. Uh, I was like, you have three very smart people who are working together and none of you came up with the simplest solution. <laughs> um, so yes, people like the exciting thing is to do like they do in the movies and do an emergency tracheotomy. But the smart thing and the best thing for your patient is to just do a regular old intubation, even if you have to use a smaller tube than you want. Um, okay. So enough ranting on that. Um, what else do they say in this? Um, they talk a little bit about maybe some of the drugs that you can use, and that's fair. Um, they mention a little bit about um, if you think you have significant airway inflammation, like everything, there's a lot of swelling back there to maybe give anti-inflammatory doses of steroids or something like that. Um, anyway, something something to consider. It's a judgment call. There's no like, always do this or never do that. You just have to kind of take it case by case. Um, you know, diagnostics, you know, get them stabilized and then you can sort that out. Um, chest x-rays are rarely going to help you figure out the cause of the upper airway obstruction. That doesn't mean they're not worth doing. Um, looking for like secondary complications, like do they have non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema from like essentially choking? Um, or do they have other complications in their lower airways or in their lungs? Um, what do you consider the neck when you're, what do you mean? Like I, I think you talk about Head x-rays and chest x-rays. Where's the neck? Is it's it between with the those head two? Or is it with um, the chest? Actually, it's usually its own set. Like yeah. neck. Yeah. So there'd be head and then neck was its own and then the chest would be its own. And with some exceptions, um, they're not particularly helpful in most cases. Yeah. Like if you're looking for a mass or a foreign body, you can try that. And sometimes they'll give you, you know, a decent answer. Usually you can just feel it. Um, no, no, it's pretty far down there. If it's down in the, then it depends on the animal, but it might be hard to feel, but you're generally going to have a suspicion of, of something like that. And then at the end of the day, like you probably, somebody's going to need to go down there and look. Um, and if you can't do that, like knocking them out or sedating them and then like looking with a laryngoscope, which is that long metal tongue looking blade that with a light attached to it, if it's further in than you can reach or that you can't get to it, then you probably need some type of endoscopy, um, a camera that can go down further. Um, so yeah, I mean, x-rays sometimes are helpful. Again, not saying if the animal is stable enough and to have them, it's a reasonable thing to try. In some cases, it depends on the history. Like if it's clearly a brachycephalic airway syndrome dog, then I don't need x-rays of the neck to tell me that. Like they're not going to help me. Um, if the dog sounds like a laryngeal paralysis dog, we're just going to have to sedate it and look at the, the larynx. And what you can do is while they're breathing, you can watch and see what the larynx does. And if it's not doing what it's supposed to, because it's weak or it's paralyzed, then you'll be able to just visualize that. Um, so again, and, and this chapter kind of goes through each disease and I, I, the, I notice like, so disease by disease, and you can tell very quickly just by scanning this chapter, how common a disease is based on how long that segment is. Mm-hmm. Um, so brachycephalic airway syndrome has, you know, several long paragraphs, nasopharyngeal polyps has a few, um, I would, well, I may have just lied a little bit. Nasopharyngeal stenosis has a, a decently long single paragraph, but a fairly long paragraph is probably longer than it needs to be because that's super uncommon. Um, some congenital abnormalities, foreign bodies and infection, and then laryngeal paralysis is like a whole page. 
um, which is again, a nice common disease. So that's, that's a good one. Tracheal collapse is another full page. Um, and, and some of the other ones. So it gives you an idea of how much time should I spend on this? Um, yeah, that's a, it's a pretty good way to break things down. So the bigger, the biggest ones and the longest sections of the chapter is going to be brachycephalic airway syndrome. So that's your bulldogs. So brachycephalic means they have a short nose. So it's like genetic stuff. Yeah, it's that you took the tissue of a regular face dog and you smushed it, but you didn't remove any tissue. You just squished it. And so all that tissue kind of bunches up and causes problems. And then laryngeal paralysis is the one where those um, two cartilage pieces that are supposed to open when you breathe and close when you swallow so that air goes down your airways and food does not. Um, if those become paralyzed, then they don't open all the way. They also don't close all the way, which is really annoying. Because so what causes that? Um that is uh, dumb luck. Uh, no, not exactly. There's probably genetics is a part of it. So it tends to be in like older Labrador type breeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty common and it's part of a, a complex of neurologic decline. It causes this a peripheral neuropathy. Um, that's just the most life threatening part of it. So they might actually get some um, like weakness in their limbs and things like that as well. But the not breathing is the obviously life threatening bit. Um, and the, you know, the treatment for that is, sedation, trying to keep them calm so they don't get overly excited, kind of keeping them in shape, keeping them from being really overweight, controlled exercise. So not that they can't exercise, they just can't overdo it. Um, And trying to keep them from ever overheating because they're not good at panting anymore. And that's like dogs are panters. That's what they do. So you have to make it so, you know, they don't ever have to get into a situation where they can't um, cool themselves off uh, quickly and efficiently. And if Medical management, meaning like, you know, lifestyle changes and maybe some sedation if they get anxious, um, then there is a surgery where you just tie one half of the larynx back. So it's half open all the time, which means they can breathe. So that's cool. Yeah. But as you can imagine, it also means they're at increased risk of bad things going down the airway. They just gag a lot. They don't actually even gag. It's just that every once in a while they get pneumonia because stuff fell down into their lungs that wasn't supposed to. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the deal. Then the other big one that we didn't really talk about yet is tracheal collapse. And I mentioned at the beginning that the trachea usually gets lumped in with the upper airways. I hear you talk about that one a lot. Yeah, this is a common disease. Trachea is kind of in the middle. Like if you had upper airway diseases, lower airway diseases, and then you had middle airway diseases, that's what the trachea would be, but it usually gets lumped in with the upper airways. So this one, as I said, I was saying previously that a lot of your upper airway disease patients will have problems on inspiration. This one's different. So tracheal collapse, it's an expiratory problem. So the trachea so is made up of cartilaginous rings, um, but it's not a complete ring. It's like it's like one of those cheap carnival things you get where the ring's got a little like um, split in it so you can fit to any size finger. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? So that's kind of what the tracheal rings look like. They're incomplete rings. And at the top, um, kind of toward the spine, is where that gap is. And so there's a ligament that runs there that gets kind of soft and floppy, and it will start to flatten. And so instead of the trachea being nice and open and and round, it sort of flattens down. Um, And so what animals have to do is when they exhale, they have to kind of just kind of cough, (laughs) you know, with everything. And they'll actually cough quite a bit. Um, And they will do what's referred to as a goose honking cough. Okay, you ready? (laughs) (coughs) Kind of like that. I know you're enjoying this. I hope everybody listening is... I hope everybody listening is is enjoying this too. Um, so that goose honking cough is classic for tracheal collapse. And again, that, but even when they're not coughing, usually they have increased expiratory effort. So they will engage their abdominal muscles on exhalation to force more air out, just 
flush it out. Um, and so that's, um, that's going to be different from the other upper airway diseases. But the treatment is going to be fairly similar um, in that you want to calm them down. Like sedation is going to be the most important thing. Same thing, like you're going to provide them with some supplemental oxygen and it's probably not going to make a big difference. What they really need is to calm down and then have the obstruction relieved. Um, For these guys... (laughs) It seems like the the treatment for all these is you need to calm down. (laughs) It is. But just like in people... If you, just like in people, if you say it to them, it doesn't actually help. <laughs> if anything, it might make things worse, even if you're Taylor Swift. So, um, so yeah, getting them to calm down with drugs is better. That probably also works for people. <laughs> um, so, yeah, please don't ever tell me to calm down. You need to calm down. That does the opposite. I say it all the time. It just makes her mad and it's yeah. great. Yeah, that's usually your goal, though. You don't actually want me to calm down if you say you need to calm down because you know the effect it has. Everyone knows this. Um, so, yeah, telling a dog or a cat to calm down uh, also never, ever, ever works. But giving them drugs to enforce it often does. Um, and again, you can provide them with some oxygen, too. That's fine. And what do you think if that's not working? What are you going to do? An animal with a tracheal collapse. And you've given them sedation and oxygen and it's just not working. Shove a tube down there. Yeah, <laughs> you win again. Ding, 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 ding. You're winning at the quiz show. Okay. Um, yeah, it's the same thing. So we're going to pass the tube down there and that will either bypass the collapsed part of the trachea, which it might. Um, but even if it doesn't, I can give positive pressure breaths and I can, I can kind of stent open the trachea in the short term if I need to. I try really hard not to do that because they're very hard to extubate because they get to where they like having that stiff tube in where their floppy tube isn't working um, unless we have a plan to put a stent in. And so that's going to be a salvage procedure for animals with a tracheal, uh, with tracheal collapses to put a stent in too stent open the trachea but it's not perfect and that's got all sorts of complications and it's also a specialty procedure so if you're not in a specialty practice that can do that you're going to have to stick with sedation 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 mm-hmm. that's really that's what you got to do um so yeah the treatment for all these diseases is very similar keep them calm give them sedation, try a little extra oxygen. It's probably not going to make a huge difference though. And the good news is unless they have some secondary complication, like they have, um, you know, uh, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema or they've aspirated, that means once you get them calmed down, they can leave the hospital, right? They can go back home and you just have to train the the clients on like what to do and how do you, um, you know, help keep them calm? What are activities to avoid? Oh, every time, you know, the doorbell rings, my, my, you know, toy poodle just goes bonkers and then he goes into these coughing fits and then he can't breathe and it's like okay well earmuffs we're yeah we're gonna have to disable that um that doorbell like just turn off the doorbell um put a sign up and say use the knocker or something like that um and if there are certain times when you know your dog gets stressed like there are sedatives that we can give them for at home and and so it's just managing things until it gets to be too bad and then when it's too bad then you try one of the salvage procedures so um so all three of those major diseases have a surgical salvage procedure so brachycephalic airway syndrome you go in and you trim some of that extra tissue um at the back of the, the throat so the soft tissue or the soft palate is usually elongated and, and getting in the way and so you can trim that back um you can also remove some um, essentially like tonsillar tissue um, to try to remove um, anything that would obstruct the airway. And then we already talked about for laryngeal paralysis, tacking down one of the folds of the larynx to keep that open. And then in for the trachea, it's like a stenting procedure. So there are all, and they're all salvaged, right? Like that's, 
it's going to, they're going to continue to have the problem, but it's buying them some time and improved quality of life. And then, you know, there's the specific things. There's a foreign body. All right. You got to get the foreign body out. There's a tumor. All right. Well, you have to figure out a way to debulk the tumor or remove it completely. Um, if that's something that's possible. Um, Does like an allergy count? Like uh, they have an allergic reaction to something? Super glad you brought this up. Um, it's a really good question. And because in people, we worry about that, right? People who have an allergic reaction, we always say their throat's going to close and, yeah. and they get airway inflammation. And that is not really what happens in dogs and cats when they get an allergic reaction. Yeah. Yeah. They get swelling of their face and stuff like that, but their, their throat doesn't close up, which is cool. Seems like um, a design flaw on us. Right? Yeah, it totally is. Um, I mean, allergies are kind of a design <laughs> flaw. Um, but yeah, it's actually, and it's something that people often worry about. Like when their pet's having an allergic reaction, got stung by a bee and his eyes are all puffy and swollen and he comes in and he's like, what's up? My face is all swollen, but he's breathing just fine. Um, the swelling goes outward. It doesn't go inward in dogs and cats. So, yay. Um, so, uh, you know, is it impossible? Probably not impossible, but does it happen? I've never seen it. I've never seen an allergic reaction, um, cause a throat like the throat to close up or the airways to become swollen to where the animal couldn't breathe. So, but yeah, very good question. Something that people often assume because that's what happens in people, but doesn't really happen in dogs and cats. Isn't that cool? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I covered most of the things that they covered in this book. So, you know, you just have to, that, like some of the complications, one thing I've mentioned a couple of times that's worth probably explaining is um, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema which is the fancy clump of words that means you got fluid leaking out into the uh, uh, small alveoli, the air sacs that shouldn't have any fluid in them. Um, and it happens because of something other than heart failure. So non-cardiogenic, so not heart failure induced fluid in the lungs. And the reason that comes up in these animals with upper airway disease is if you have an upper airway obstruction, one of the causes for non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema is essentially choking um, or drowning or something like that. So breathing, trying to breathe against a closed airway. Um, and so these patients can develop um, because of like the dramatic, you're trying to breathe in against a closed, like there's nothing there. You can cause um, pressure changes so dramatic that actually fluid leaks out into your airways, which is pretty sucky. Um, it sometimes gets called flash edema, which is kind of a cool term. And it gets called that because it happens really fast, like a flash flood. Mm -hmm. And probably the best example um, I ever witnessed of this was, um, this was when I was practicing in South Africa and we had a dog that came in and it was being assessed for um, tracheal collapse. And it was stable, came in for like an appointment to work it up for whatever. And they were um, getting x-rays on it. And I wasn't part of the case at this point but they're getting x-rays on it. And they took, I can't remember if they took one or two, but they got one of the lateral views and I think maybe a VD view. So one of the kind of over the back and then one on the side. And then the dog started like freaking out and panicking. And so I was like, holy, this is really bad. And so they aborted, they were like, stop, stop, stop. Um, and then they brought the animal to the ICU, which was when I got involved and we gave it some sedation, gave a little oxygen and got it calmed down. And then like 45 minutes later, the dog was doing better, took it back to radiology, got the third x-ray, the other side. And so we had two lateral views and one with normal, nice, healthy lungs. And the other one with like severe non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And it happened lickety split um, when that dog was, you know, struggling and trying to breathe against a closed airway. And it was for me just like a great illustration of um, one, how quickly that can happen. It was kind of amazing. Um, but anyway. Yeah. It's like when you suck through a straw. Yeah. And, something, and then you your eyeballs of, pop out. You can get a lot of liquid. 
<laughs> yeah. Like through a, uh, a tiny little straw. Yeah. Through like a cloth or something that would yeah. normally hold the water back. Yeah. But if, you, if you suck on it, it'll come right through. Yeah. That's actually a really good analogy. Um, because the tissues of your lungs are by design, very, very thin mm -hmm. and kind of tissue papery because they're meant for easy gas exchange, right? If it was not easy for gas to just, you know, diffuse across them then breathing would be really hard. Yeah. Um, it's like an internal hickey. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> that is kind of what it's like, I guess. Um, I don't know if I like that analogy quite as much, but uh, so anyway, that's this chapter. That was kind of it's really just like a rundown of the common diseases that um, cause upper airway obstruction or upper airway diseases, and essentially this is like a little a little taste for what's to come. Because if I skip ahead, um, you'll notice. Well, not you'll notice, but I'm going to tell you um, the next chapter. Chapter, chapter 18, which we'll do the next time, is on more on brachycephalic airway syndrome. Um, so that was one that we talked about today. And there, there's a whole chapter dedicated to it. That's how common it is. And now I'm trying to figure out, do they have one on like laryngeal paralysis and stuff like that? It's not the one right after that. So we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, but yeah, we didn't have a game today. No, I thought of a game. Oh, we have a game today. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what's the it's game gonna we're going to play? Name that cough. Oh my goodness. Okay. You can do the coughs again. And I then I'm going to say what they are. And what it's related to. Okay. So I'm quizzing you based on the sounds that I make. Yeah. We'll okay. see how much I remember from okay. the past 30 minutes, 36 okay. minutes. Okay. This is, okay. Again, I'm going to move away from the microphone so it's not blaring in anyone's ears and I'll move closer if I feel like I need to. This is why everybody's staying around. They were waiting for the coughs again. You think so? Yeah. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Laughing. That is this the, is serious stuff, over. All right. This is the one I don't 100% remember the name for. It's the Stromer. <laughs> oh. Sturder. Sturder cough. Oh, darn. Yeah. And it's when um, there's, it's like the bulldogs and stuff when there's too much flesh and stuff. In yeah. So the other um, analogy I'll make with this one is anybody who plays a musical instrument and you think of like the reed instruments, like a tuba, the reed sort of vibrates. Um, it, this is my understanding of, of playing instruments. I don't play any musical instruments, but that's my understanding is you get the reed to vibrate and that's what gives you the kind of the lower pitched um, instruments, the rumbling of the lower pitch. So this is the the soft palate, the fleshy part of the back of your throat vibrating kind of gives you that snoring, that low pitch snoring sound. Yes, so you got that one mostly right. Stromer was not quite right, but uh, Sturder. <laughs> Sturder. Well, their names are just too close. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you ready? Yeah. <coughs> <coughs> Okay, what was That's that one? The goose honk cough. <laughs> yes, which is usually seen with what disease? Is the collapsing trachea. Yes, that's collapsing trachea. Very good. Ding ding. We don't have our like ding 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 buttons. Yeah, but that's I okay. don't have the buttons with me. They're over by body. Yeah, well, I don't remember which is which. No, it's none of those. It's this one. You have to turn the sound up too. It was that was kind of a goose honk cough. It's a DJ rap horn. <laughs> All right, that's what you get. Um, okay, you ready? Yeah. <laughs> These hurt my throat a little. <laughs> That's the Strider call. Strider, yeah. And you remember the name of that one. Is it the, like, the larynx is open one? I don't actually remember what this one was for. It was the it was the laryngeal one, so the laryngeal paralysis. Laryngeal where paralysis, the, that's what Yeah, so what happens is because the, oh, the stuck, larynx doesn't open all the way. It's closed. It's like, it's like this. Instead of, it's supposed to close and then open, and it's always stuck kind of in the middle. Yeah. And so you get kind of that higher pitch. Like when you whistle. Like when you whistle, you narrow your lips and you make them smaller. Yeah, it's the Labrador one. Yeah, it's the Labrador one. And so when they pant, it gets very high-pitched. Um, okay. 
You ready for one more noise? There's another one? I don't know. I'm trying to think of one really quickly because I just want to make another noise. And No, there was, those are the three that we talked about. Um, but yay, that was your quiz. Now that my throat hurts, um, it's probably time to call it a day so that I can go get something to drink and take it easier on my throat. But that was, uh, what was the name of that chapter again? Upper, Upper Airway, Airway Diseases. Disease. Chapter 17. Chapter 17. Um, thanks for listening and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.